the title of the talk, Bittersweet Adaptation. Um, it's about taste, and it's about an article that's in preparation <clears throat> with a number of my really wonderful colleagues in Bologna. Now, Bologna is a great place to study taste because not only is it the, the food capital of Italy, it has a lot of people in different disciplines who are interested in food and taste and evolution and ecology and so on. Um, <clears throat> not only that, um, we actually get to share food, we get to eat together, and we get to talk together and get very passionate about about these uh, about these issues. So this is a, a paper that's in preparation with uh, <clears throat> um, Donato Luiselli, who's up here, um, pointing to something, probably a bar of chocolate. Um, Christina Giuliani, who is really amazing. She's kind of probably what in her early thirties, <clears throat> um, and. Uh, you know, she embodies multidisciplinarity. She has a medical degree, and she um, is doing a postdoc in uh, in immunology, and yet, you know, talks with anthropologists, psychologists, and so on. Claudio Franceschi, who is a force, he's seventy something years old, and he is absolutely astonishing. You watch him with his dark spectacles on, black t-shirt, black suit, walking on with this phalanx of young people behind him, and you think, yeah. He's a role model. He's definitely a role model. <clears throat> and you know what? He enjoys life and food like a truffle pig loves truffles. Straight into it and, and totally absorbed. And myself, I kind of just move along with it all. <clears throat> anyway, bittersweet adaptation. Taste is complicated. <laughs> um, it involves this thing. You've all got it. Um, and it involves all kinds of things. Lots of receptors, taste buds, um, that contain those receptors on the tongue. And you know, you know, when you taste something, you taste something at the front of your tongue, the side of your tongue, on the back of your tongue, all kinds of things going on, just as you put something into your, your mouth. <clears throat> A life-changing moment, if you haven't had this life-changing moment already, is to try uh, pecorino sardo with truffles. Is it not a life-changing moment? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. I bought some back from Tess from the, the last trip to Bologna. Um, and when you put it on your tongue, it really does amazing things to your brain. It really... It, uh, uh, and tasting something like that is using so much of that equipment on your tongue immediately, as well as your nose, you know, as well as your brain. So totally absorbing. Food can be better than sex. Pecorino sarado with truffle is predictable. Sex is not predictable. <laughs> okay. And it, it employs smell. You know, if you cut off your smell sensors, you often cut off a lot of your ability to distinguish the difference between an apple and a mango, for example. You take a fruit juice... Um, that claims to be one thing or another thing, and you can't distinguish them. All you can taste is sweetness. You can't distinguish because your smell senses are combining you know, a number of your senses in a particular way that you will then remember as a particular thing. So, what's the point? The tongue 
smell. These are sensorial things. So humans and all other mammalian species inter- interact with the material world through physical and chemical sensing. We touch things, we see things, we smell things, we taste things. Um, taste is actually probably more important than sex as well, in that if you don't eat, you don't live. It's fundamental, taste is fundamental to diet choice. And it's a perception system that's mediated by biochemical compounds. So, how complex is it? Here's a peach, you see it, you smell it, you taste it, the nose sends signals to the olfactory cortex, um, <clears throat> the eye sends signals back to the, to, 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 to the thalamus, the tongue sends signals back to, to, to the brainstem, to the thalamus. This then uh, orders and organizes a lot of those sensors and sends them off to different parts of the brain uh, that then, then integrate this idea of a peach and the idea of what a peach tastes like, smells like. In your minds, you will all have, I imagine, if you've ever eaten a peach, will have an idea of what a peach is, and you'll associate it with a particular memory. For me, the best memory of peaches was with four Italian females in a peach orchard um, in Italy when I was 19 years old. Um, doesn't happen. This, is a, this wasn't field work at all, but I was hitchhiking through Italy, and I found myself with four young Italian women who were also hitchhiking, and they said, will you protect us? I said, I've no idea if I can protect you. And they were incredibly trusting, but somehow we found ourselves in a peach orchard at the end of the day. It was absolutely no sex involved whatsoever. But the, <laughs> the, the peaches were fantastic, absolutely, totally, totally amazing. So when I think of peaches... I think of Italy and orchards and women. So all of this combined. But you'll have your own particular peach memory. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is because you're combining the sensorial with memory in constructing what is an appropriate thing to do. I will continue to love peaches for the rest of my life um, for, for, for various reasons. Okay. I'm going to hone down on two something that is very particular in evolution, which is sweet and bitter in food selection. Um, Can't deal with all the senses, but from an evolution perspective, sweetness and bitterness have been constructed in particular ways in thinking about, about food choice. Very simply, sweet taste sensitivity signals dietary energy. So here's a young chimpanzee with lots of peaches. Got the idea in his brain already. And here's an older chimpanzee saying, can I eat this, um, this stem and these leaves? Thinking, do I know this? Will this be good or bad? Holding a grimace, which is actually a response to bitterness. So... The crudest way of thinking about sweet and bitter is that sweetness signals energy, dietary energy. Bitterness signals danger. Now, of course, you can say straight away that bitterness doesn't necessarily just signal danger. Again, go to Italy. People love bitter foods. We can train ourselves to consume all kinds of bitter foods because um, there's a payoff from eating things that are sweet and bitter in combination. And in fact, 
Um, the two are related. When you put sweet and bitter together, you can consume a lot more sweet things because, because the sensorial aspect of consuming sweet and bitter together is so much more than either of those individually. But I'm going to separate them and then bring them back together when I come towards the end. Okay, this is, these are classic slides. <clears throat> um, Claude Marcel Ladique in Paris worked with primates forever and produced some classical charts which are look at the relationship between body weight and taste threshold for fructose, for sucrose. Um, so diff- two different kinds of sugars. Fructose is the, the dominant sugar in fruit. Um, glucose, suc- sucrose is a, a, a dominant sugar in cane, for example. Um, and show that the, the larger a primate species is, the, um, <clears throat> the uh, lower is the taste threshold. So, for example, as a large primate, we can taste sweetness in all kinds of things. We can even detect sweetness that we don't even think of as being sweet. For example, the sweetness in bread, if you're eating a McDonald's burger, for example, there's sugar in there, quite deliberately, because it's increasing the palatability. Even at very, very low taste Thresholds. We can taste the sweetness in a lettuce leaf without thinking of it as being sweet, necessarily. We don't put it in the category of sweet. But we respond to the very tiny amounts of sugar that are, that are in there. So sweetness is a signal for energy, and having a low sweet taste threshold means that we consume lots of these things because we take sweetness in lots of things. Um, <clears throat> bitter taste sensitivity, however, flat lines. So the argument has always been that there are divergent evolutionary trends for meeting energy needs and avoiding noxious substances. That is, you detect energy, but if you've got you know, a, uh, a, a, a good threshold for, for tasting, tasting bitterness, then you can cut out these things that are particularly bitter. When we look at sweet and bitter taste sensitivities in humans, this is the first thing that led me to think about this paper. We had an aha moment in a restaurant in Bologna where everybody was high-fiving themselves over, this is a great idea, and we really nice to to write this paper. Um, um, this was the first, the first issue. That when we look at the distribution, this is just applying statistics to population distributions. Um, the human taste sensitivity towards sweetness is comparatively narrow. It's a log base, and the difference between the lowest and the highest is about log one. The difference between lowest and highest, highest for bitter taste sensitivity is two. That is a tenfold difference if you de-log this process in sweet taste sensitivity and bitter taste sensitivity. It suggests that sweet taste sensitivity is conserved. You know, everybody's got it. It's very tight. Everybody needs it. Bitter taste sensitivity, there's a number of other things going on. So the first question is, is it straightforwardly about tasting bitterness in food, or might there be other things going on? When we focus on bitterness, well, there's a lot of data, data about bitterness and you know, data about bitter taste sensitivity in children because of this classic face that people fool, pull when they, they taste something that's straightforwardly, straightforwardly bitter. The great diversity in... Um, Bitter taste sensitivity all comes straightforwardly down to the tongue. And there are some people who have more taste buds than others. 
Suzanne Magessen in Copenhagen earns a living because of her tongue. Um, she's a super taster. Her job at the Nordic Food Labs in Copenhagen is to taste food. She gets paid by this institution that does research for restaurants like Noma, for example, which is categorized as the best restaurant on the planet for a number of years. They've, they've shut it down, they're going to reopen um, uh, because they've spent all their energies in building uh, floating farms in the canals of Copenhagen uh, while you know, putting all of their money, in money, money and resources into urban ecology before reopening the restaurant. Um, she earns money because of her tongue. She's terrific. But really a pain to have dinner with because she can't, you know, she'll taste something you can't taste and she'll say, oh, I can't eat this, this is too astringent. No, I can't tell anything. No, of course you can't because, and she's lovely, but, but, you know, she notices things in food you don't notice, so really difficult. On the other hand, Kelly Brownell, he was formerly at the Rudd Center for... Um, uh, food research in Yale um, is somebody who is equally painful to have dinner with. I've been to Michelin-starred restaurants with both of these people. She can taste everything and he says, it's all wasted on me because I can't taste anything. So, great difference. Oh, Christina, she's a super taster as well. So, it, it helps. So it's a, the personal interest in thinking about these things. So, being able to detect uh, food is really in relation to just the number of taste buds. And then these taste buds, which are, you know, contain a number of different, uh, uh, a number of different receptors, um, are also not straightforward. Like sweet taste receptors are relatively simple and few, whereas bitter taste receptors are manifold. There are many different kinds of bitter taste receptors. Already that takes you a bit further by saying bitter taste could be due to your having a high concentration. This is TAS, which really means taste. TAS2 receptor, taste 1 receptor, taste. These are all taste two, TAS2 receptors. And they have different names, different numbers. Lots and lots of them. It might be because you've got a, a concentration of TAS2R16 receptors or a concentration of TAS2R38 receptors or TAS2R44 receptors. <coughs> so your bitterness could be due to a whole range of things. Why should we have a great diversity of bitter taste receptors? There's no good answer. There's no good answer. That's why you know we're writing this paper to try and get this field moving in a particular kind of in a, in a particular kind of way. I'm going to draw your attention to TAS two R thirty eight, human TAS two R thirty eight. Who's done PTC tasting experiments in any of their undergraduate? No. It's where you taste something and it tastes bitter or it doesn't taste bitter. It's a classical biological anthropology kind of taste test for um, detecting genetic polymorphisms. You take a classroom full of people and I would predict that um, in this room about a quarter of you would be able to taste this substance, phenylthiocarbamide, PTC testing. <coughs> it's a standard taste. Um, 
Usually you take a piece of paper soaked in PTC, you divide it into tasters and non-tasters, and then by assuming that PTC tasting is determined by a dominant allele at a single autosomal gene, and the sample is unbiased, then you can estimate genotype frequencies within a broader population. You can do this. It's a classic test. It's been going since the, ni- since the 1930s. It's the simplest piece of, of, uh, of biological anthropology that is demonstrating a genetic principle, but it remains a kind of encapsulated piece of laboratory knowledge. And I struggle with encapsulated knowledge. I always want to know, how does this relate to something else? I've never been able to put PTC together with anything other than demonstrating this, but now I can, so I'm happy. PTC, um, there are three common polymorphisms. Um, And they structure themselves according to taster and non-taster, so AVI and PAV. Just remember those two things. Two people that contain, that have two copies of PAV um, report PTC to be born bitter. Then people who've got one copy of AVI and one copy of PAV compared to two people who have AVI-AVI. So that's just, you know, a genetic polymorphism. So... Pav are the people who can pav pav are the people who can taste um, uh, PTC. These polymorphisms affect taste by altering G protein binding domains. What are those? That's when biochemistry starts to get interesting. I'll come on to those very very shortly because that's actually the fundamental, the other fundamental part of the story. Okay, so TAS two R thirty eight bitter tasting. In a general population, um, in a population of 500 people, it's about a quarter. There's variation around this number, but about a quarter of the people in a population can taste bitterness from using this particular using this particular substance. So it's a bitter tasting homozygote. It's not straightforward. Different populations have different proportions of populations that are um, that are pav pav, who can taste bitterness ranging from 37% to 17%. So it's a two-fold variation. Even within Europe, there's great variation in the extent to which bitterness, the genetics of bitterness on this particular gene um, uh, is uh, is fixed. Okay, so take Claude Massaladique's work on bitter taste sensitivity versus sweet taste sensitivity and the ability to taste bitterness is about feeding ecology well yes but actually there's probably more to it a large proportion of the phenotypic variation in PTC perception is due to genetic variation in this particular gene when we look at the bitterness ability to taste bitterness and what it actually means in terms of diet um, it's associated with the ability to taste naturally occurring bitter substances can we demonstrate this? Well actually pathomozygotes, the people who can taste bitterness um, rate vegetables that contain natural bitter tasting compounds in vegetables such as broccoli and kale for example who finds broccoli bitter Put your hands up. Okay, it's a couple of people. Does that then mean you don't like broccoli? Kind of, sort of. Maybe, maybe not. 
you don't you don't like broccoli. You do like broccoli. Oh, that's good. Exactly. Whereas the rest of us say, well, what's all this about? I can't taste bitterness in broccoli. I can't taste bitterness in broccoli. But, you know, some people can. It's straightforwardly down to genetic variation, almost certainly in respect of you two people. I think you'd find a lot of other things bitter as well, right? Yep. Um, we'll probably go through a list, but won't. Non-tasters, however, of course, in an Italian population, consume more cruciferous vegetables, like broccoli, like kale, like Brussels sprouts, um, than individuals carrying a single copy of the PAV taster allele. So what it does is that says that people who can taste bitterness are less likely to consume certain kinds of foods that contain bitter-tasting substances, whereas other people who can't taste bitterness are more likely to consume more of these things that contain bitterness. So it becomes, you know, a, that, that gateway is, is stronger in some people than others. The TAS2R38 haplotype, um, the non-bitter-tasting, avi-avi, more associated with overeating, but interestingly, the PAV-PAV bitter taste variation has been shown to be associated with resistance to infection. There are two things going on. You're eating food for energy as opposed to nutrients. Your physiology is largely blind, or your, your, you know, the, the mechanisms for eating and sensing food are largely blind to the content of the amount of vitamin C, vitamin A, and so on. So you have to convince yourself this is good to eat. But they're not blind to the amount of dietary energy that's in, in, in the food, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. These taste receptors, these G-coupled, uh, G-protein coupled receptors are very interesting because they combine in all kinds of ways to make things really interesting. So you can taste millions of different permutations on the basis of very simple biochemistry, combinatorial biochemistry. Two basic mechanisms for taste, and I'm going to ignore this one completely, ionic channels, sodium, sour, and carbonation. You know when you taste water, fizzy water, carbonated water, and it has a different taste to still water, you can genuinely taste that because we have receptors for carbonation. So that's you know, a relatively, it's not just sweet, sour, um, salt, um, and umami, we can taste protein. Um, it's, also, it's also carbonation. So our receptors are actually very, and when you combine these things, even these five things in combination, already create a lot of diversity in your taste. I'm just going to concentrate on sweet, sweet and bitter. So the types of receptors really are um, TAS1, so T1 means TAS, T1R2, T1R3, T1R1. T1R1 and T1R3 gives you umami. So your taste for protein is really just a combination of two kinds of G-coupled receptors. Taste for sugars, T1R2 and T1R3. Taste for sweetness. T2Rs are almost totally... Um, uh, concerned with bitter taste reception. What are these G-coupled protein, uh, G-protein coupled receptors? They're a large family of cell membrane receptors. They sit. Here's the cell membrane up here. They sit 
outside of the cell membrane and they're there to sense. The most important thing about thinking about these things as a category, as a family, is they are sensorial. They're entirely sensorial. Um, and they activate internal signaling processes. So they're involved in many different physiological processes. Vision. They're involved in taste. They're involved in smell. They're involved in behavior and mood. They're involved in the immune system. So, for example, chemokines, which mediate intercellular, intercellular communication of cells in the immune system, they can be important in the inflammatory uh, response, important in the modulation of other aspects of the immune system. So all of these things involve G-protein-coupled receptors. This was the other really cool thing um, that I was able to... Uh, show the Bologna team that made everybody very excited. This was the piece that made it truly evolutionary. Okay, looks like broccoli, but it's not. Um, it's a family tree. It's an evolutionary tree of the evolution of different kinds of G-protein coupled receptors. Lots of them that, to me, don't make sense, but some of them that do. So, the TAS two receptors are all up here in the family as bitter taste. The chemokine receptor family is up here, immunological uh, G-protein coupled receptors. Over here, neuropeptide, uh, cholecystokinine, proteins, neuropeptide Y, all of these are, are receptors associated with appetite, energy balance, and GnRH, gonadotrophin releasing hormone, reproduction, all of them sitting together as a family. Think of these things as being, and sweetness and umami appear sitting in, a, in the same place. So, what, what it shows us, if we're thinking about evolutionary processes, these G protein coupled receptors have evolved to develop the sensors in relation to important functionality being able to avoid toxins, being able to signal for energy, to be able to ingest, to reproduce, to be able to avoid um, external threats, pathogenic threats, all of them are really the same thing. The, total, the totality of these things, while they're taught as separate things, is in the sensorial. And the one thing that I can't offer, but I would wish you to think about, is how you can incorporate these ideas in sensorial anthropology. Because I think this is actually probably something that could potentially revolutionise the field. I would say that because I'm passionate about it. But, but I, I think it's, it's something that's, that's hugely fundamental. Okay. The other piece that's quite recent, 2016 is that when you start looking for sweet and bitter taste receptors, um, yeah, you've got them in your mouth, you've got them in your nose and sinuses, um, they're in the brain, okay, well, yes, we can accept that. They're in the trachea, yep, something down here, sweet and bitter, maybe you can taste that. Um, stomach. Does your stomach tell you that something tastes sweet? Something in your stomach tell you that something tastes bitter? No, no, I cannot taste sweetness in my stomach. Nor can I taste sweetness in my colon. Definitely cannot taste sweetness or bitterness in my colon. And I imagine most of you can't either. 
Um, bitter taste receptors in the heart. Bitter taste receptors in the lung, epithelium, and smooth muscle. Sweet taste receptors in the adipose tissue, bladder, bone, testes. Is this confusing? No, of course it's not confusing to the enlightened one. No, very straightforwardly. No, just because if it's an indicator of energy, then it's not a big surprise that you find it in, in, yeah. in tissues that are on the tongue. Absolutely. It, it's because these are signaling proteins. And we've applied the name of sweet taste receptor and bitter taste receptor on the basis of identifying, identifying this in the mouth originally. And then they keep that name, but actually they do so much more work than simply tasting sweetness or bitterness. They're doing a lot of other work in other parts of the body. So the question is, separating the idea of sweet and taste, sweet and bitter taste from these two, you know, what is the signaling? What is the sensing they're doing in other parts of the body? I'm going to focus on one particular thing, which, you know, might help to explain bitter taste receptors, because you can't taste bitterness um, in the lung epithelium and the smooth muscle. There's one model that's been applied to this so far. And this is TAS2R38, the classical experiment and resistance to infection. Okay, the people who are PAV-PAV, bitter taste receptive, uh, um, you can, who, who have uh, a homicide for bitter taste perception um, with PTC, um, have a much lower um, uh, uh, response, uh, have much lower um, viable um, pseudomonas bacteria after exposure in an experimental study, whereas the heterozygote and the non-tasters, all of them um, have higher, um, higher, higher bacterial loads. So the PAV-PAV appear to be more resistant to respiratory infection on this basis. So AVI-AVI, non-tasters, can eat more bitter vegetables and have a bigger diet breadth. On the other hand, the PAV-PAV with bitter taste receptors might eat less, have a lower diet breadth, but be more resistant to respiratory infection. So in thinking about this, um, that there are actually two selective pressures. One is enablement of diet breath, and on the other hand, the resistance to infection. So the balancing selection that you'd see in the taste, tasting, non-tasting PTC people is the people who, you know, the, the, the selection going on in, in balancing the uh, uh, possibility of uh, having a broader diet breadth and being more resistant to infectious disease. Okay, that's TAS2R38, just to demonstrate that there are at least two other um, uh, um, taste receptor systems that show the same kind of effect. There may be more. Um, but it's saying that you know, bitter taste receptors may be um, in, uh, have a role in, in, in disease resistance. And the fact that there may be many different types of bitter taste receptors um, that, 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 that human populations have may be because each of them has a different... Uh, a slightly different function. There may be 
different patterns of disease, resi- disease resistance that lead to different kinds of different polymorphisms being fixed in those populations. So there's great diversity in bitter taste and bitter taste receptors because there's a greater diversity of pathogenicity in, 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 the, in the environment. That's a speculation, and it's a speculation that is, is going to go into this paper. Um, actually, it is a speculation that we plan to test. So actually, in a lovely cafe in Bologna, uh, we've planned three experiments. And, uh, and uh, across the course of the next few months, we hope to be able to demonstrate at least proof of principle in, in, the, in these ideas. Okay, what I want to do is to start to sort of bring this together. So apologies for the, for the, you know, for the, for the, for the physiology here. Um, what's going on? Okay, Pseudo, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, sort of, okay, so that's, that's, that's pneumonia, basically. Uh, uh, when it invades the lungs, for example, um, signals the presence um, through, its presence through acylated homoserine lactone, okay? So once that's, that's signaled, the individuals who have PAV-PAV, bitter tasters, um, will respond to these particular protein, to, to, these, uh, to these particular molecules, will increase their calcium signaling, get the cilia waving very, very quickly, so you're more likely to cough stuff up, um, increase nitric, uh, nitric oxide production, which will then also serve to kill these particular, kill these particular uh, pathogens. Okay, that's, that's one arm of it. So actually, the bitter taste receptors are able to detect uh, bacteria and do something about it. They can kill and they can increase the likelihood of them being uh, expelled. When we want to put this into everyday terms, when we think about the major causes of under five mortality in developing countries, respiratory infections and diarrhea two leading causes of death in young children. So the intense selective pressures, the selection for you know, bitter taste sensitivity is a fundamental thing that is under selective pressure to the present day because of exposure to these, these particular agents. It's not just about food is what I'm saying. It's about, about the relationship between the need to ingest food and the avoidance of, of ingesting pathogens, whether breathing them in or whether, whether consuming them um, in, in the gut. Of course, it is more complicated. More complicated because it's not just about bitter taste versus sweet taste. It's about the relationship between, it's about the, relationship between the two. First of all, um, with infection, individuals with um, who are PAV-PAV, who uh, uh, can taste bitterness, um, can taste the bacteria. How can they taste the bacteria? Well, first of all, they taste the bacteria because, because there are bitter microbial products um, these uh, 
the bacteria consume glucose, metabolize glucose, to, uh, to be able to increase in their number and to be able to thrive. They produce bitter substances which are tasted, sensed. Let's say sensed. And so, you know, as sweetness declines, so these taste receptors, the inhibition declines with respect to sweet taste receptors and in case increases with respect to bitter taste receptors. So, so what happens is as the balance of sweet to bitter changes, sweetness declines, bitter increases, the sensing of bacteria increases. So it's a balance. It's not just one versus the other. It's the relationship between the two. So in this sense, the idea of tasting becomes quite important and that one tastes potential pathogens because of their metabolism in, in the respiratory cilia, probably in the gut as well, but that hasn't been, hasn't been demonstrated as a, as, as a model. And so our close relationship between bitter, uh, bitter, sweet, bitter taste and sweet taste is not just about gatekeeping at the mouth, it's about gatekeeping in the gut as well. It is more complicated than this as well, and I just want to say that there is an additional component to this, which, um, which, uh, which we're also developing, that involves the gut. So that's the other thing. So if you really want to think about this in great depth and remember this into the future, don't think about peaches. Leave that to me. Think about dark chocolate. Bittersweet dark chocolate. So, in summary... Sweet and bitter taste perception, where do we, where, where, where have we got to? It's less about food and more about environmental sensing. Of course it influences feeding ecology, um, but it's been shown to regulate upper respiratory tract innate immunity and may do so also for the gut. So much more fundamental than the classical picture and we're hoping that as we proceed with this particular research article and research project that we can actually ecologize taste way beyond, uh, way beyond food. Thank you.